tonight, let's go ahead and start with a word of prayer. God, we just thank you so much for your love. Lord, we are blessed by who you are, the creator. Lord, you are amazing. And we love you and we praise you and we thank you for meeting with us here tonight. And God, I just pray that you would bless each one of these ladies as we dive into your word and we talk about faith. Because you say in your word that without faith, it's impossible to please you. And so God, we want that faith. And I pray that you would help each of us step out. I pray that you would empower us with boldness that we would step out in faith like what we read about these men and women in the Word. God, I know that times change. I know that people change. Customs change. But one thing that never changes is you, God. And you can do the same thing through us that you do through these men and women that we read in the Bible. And that is what I pray that you will do. Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear. Give us a heart that's open to your word. And God, we just praise you and we thank you for what you're going to do tonight in Christ's name. Amen. So, you know, this being a lesson on faith, I'm going to see if I can lower this. <laughs> we'll just do it that way. This being a lesson on faith, I just have to tell you that, like I say, I'm a little bit intimidated stepping into this, and my knees are kind of shaking, and my hands are kind of shaking, but what better way to step out on faith and do what God is calling us to do? So I am honored to be here and stand before you tonight, I don't take that lightly, but it is something that I feel God has called me to do. So, I love talking about faith. I love to read about faith. I don't know about y'all, but when I read about the men and women in the Bible, I get very challenged and very encouraged because I know that that same God that was working in their lives, he's still the same. And he still does miracles, and he will still work in our lives as well. When I read through Hebrews 11, which we're going to read some from there tonight, I listen to that, and I'm like, oh, that I would have the faith that they had. So let's take Rahab, for instance. We talked about her this week in the lesson, if you recall. We studied about her. By faith, and this is what it says in Hebrews 11, in verse 31. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Do you recall in the study, why did she do that? She knew what their God had done. They had heard. He had a reputation. Their hearts melted. And so she knew. She knows his reputation, his power. She fears him. Let me ask you this. Do you recall where she ends up in the New Testament besides in Hebrews? 
In Matthew, where? In the lineage of Jesus. In the lineage of Christ. She is mentioned in the lineage of Christ. Now think about if she had not believed God and stood on her faith. She would have missed so much and actually would have died with the rest of Jericho when they came in and took that land. But she didn't. Who was her son? Boaz. And who did Boaz marry? I know at the very end of our lesson, she, I know Angie, uh, Angie did not go on and talk about Ruth, but she did ask us to read Ruth. Did you take the time to do that? I did a study this summer, just a personal study on the book of Ruth, and what an amazing, amazing love story. After the death of their husbands, if you recall, Ruth and Orpah and Naomi, the bitter mother-in-law, left Moab to go back to Bethlehem. And you remember that um, the two daughters-in-law wanted to go with her, and she's like, no, what, do you think I can have another child so that you can have a husband? No, you don't come with me. You stay here and marry here. Orpah did. She said, okay, I will. But Ruth said, Ruth clung to her. And she said, these were her words in Ruth 1, 14, 16, or excuse me, Ruth 1, 16 and 17. Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. May the Lord, oh, where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more, if anything but death parts me from you. So obviously, Naomi and, um, oh, what was her husband's name, Elimelech or something like that? I think that was it. Obviously, they taught their daughters-in-law, along with their sons, about God. Enough that Ruth said, no, I don't want to stay here in this country, which is my country, that worships idols. I want to go with you and worship your God. And when she gets back to Bethlehem, she meets Boaz. God has blessed her, and she meets Boaz and they marry. And then, who is her child? Do you recall? I'm sorry? Obed. Yes, Obed is. And who comes after Obed? Jesse. And then who comes after Jesse? King David. And then, where does that go? So again, Ruth, because she believed God and feared God, and stepped out on faith, she too is mentioned in the line of Christ. Can you just imagine the faith that she had and what it did for her? Again, think of the opposite. If she hadn't done that, you know, we never hear of Orpah mentioned again. Have you thought about that? She chose to stay where she was, and she's never mentioned again. So then we have Moses, one of the men that we studied about this week. And I'm just going to read to you. If you want to follow along, it's in Hebrews 11. And we'll start at verse 23. 
says, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were afraid of the king's edict. Now, what was the king going to do? The king was going to kill all the little boys, and so they hid him, remember? By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Do you understand what he's saying there? He chooses suffering over a life of luxury. Now, Mark and I were talking on the way to church tonight. I don't know that the Bible says how old he was when he went back to the king's palace. Does anybody know how old he was? That was 80 when he went into the wilderness. Right, but, but I think when he was weaned was when he went back to the king's daughter, right? I'm pretty sure it was. So, you know, he had to be pretty young. So one of two things, or maybe both, he was a real quick learner, but can you imagine how much his mother poured into him to help him understand what his heritage was, that he was a Jew and not an Egyptian, and he chose God over the life of luxury, and I just, I am amazed by that. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith... He kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. Okay, so now, I don't know about y'all, but I'm just wondering, when we read this, what are you guys thinking? I'm just curious. Do you think that there's something extra special about Moses or about any of these men and women of faith that we read in the Bible? Do you see yourself being able to do the same thing? That, that's what I'm getting at. Or do we see them as somebody set apart that we could never do that. Because that's where I want us to come down and say, no, we can. We can do that because God is still the same God. And then I also want to point out that while they talk about all the great things that they did, I don't know if you have read or, or picked up on Exodus 3 and 4. We spend Exodus 3 and half of 4. Moses is arguing with God. I can't do that. He sees him in the burning bush. That's where he first encounters him in the wilderness. And then, and then God is like, this is what I want you to do. Go rescue my people. Deliver them from Pharaoh, and I'll be with you. I cannot tell you how many excuses Moses gives. I can't do that. I can't do that. And God says, but I'll be with you. He answers every one of his arguments. And he's like, yes, but I can't. So in Exodus 4, 10 through 14, 
Moses said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? What makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, Oh my Lord, place in someone else. I'm sorry, but that wouldn't be me, y'all. I'm sorry. And I'm just like, wow. So we see Moses doing all these great things, but that's how he started out. God, please don't send me. Go find somebody else because you got the wrong person if you want me to go do that. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. But look at the great things that he did because he went ahead and surrendered. And Abraham and Sarah didn't do it perfect either. We know that. We studied that. They had to help God along because he was not doing it fast enough. You know what? God's timetable is not our timetable. We have to follow him and surrender to his timetable rather than try to help him along in ours. And you know what? These stories of faith took a long time. We were trying to figure out how long it took Noah to build the ark. I'm going to say 100 years or very close to it. And that whole time he had to be ridiculed. And I'm sure it was not a great experience for him. But he believed God. He trusted God. The last one I want to mention is Joshua. Um, I just I think about being Joshua leading the children of Israel after Moses because he was such a great leader. And trying to follow someone like that, I just can't even imagine. But what did God say in Joshua 1.5? Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. Four times in the first chapter, God says to Joshua, be strong and courageous. One of those times, he was very courageous. Be strong and very courageous. And then Joshua did all the great things that he did. They crossed the Jordan River when it was over its banks, pretty much like the Red Sea. And then he set up the stones, which is just another whole great story um, lesson to study as well. You know, we could actually spend all night talking about all the people of faith. But I want to bring this down on page 82 of your homework, she asked, Angie asked questions, and she says, have you ever felt God calling you to do something that seemed crazy? Her next question was, did you do it? And what were the results? You know, I want to give just a little snippet of something that I wrote down, and I hadn't even really thought about it until it's like God brought it to mind, I wrote it down, and when I did, at the end of it, I just wrote, wow. When we lived in Dallas back in the late um, 80s, I was working for a law firm downtown. Mark and I had started a church. And by the way, I did intend to introduce myself, and I didn't. I am so sorry. I'm Judy Reynolds. I've not been at the church maybe a couple of years. My husband and I used to pastor a church here. And uh, we're now missionaries. We travel to Central America and drill water wells. So now that we got that out of the way. I'm sorry I didn't do that before, y'all. I, I really apologize. 
but we were we were there uh, in a small church that we had started. Um, there was not that much money in the church, so I was working. We had kids at home, and I worked for a law firm downtown, and I felt God telling me, I want you to quit your job. You know, to me, that really didn't make a whole lot of sense because we needed my paycheck. But, you know, when you feel God telling you to do something, you need to listen. And so Mark and I prayed about it. I quit my job. I ended up back at a different law firm as a freelance secretary. It was a law firm by the name of Jackson Walker. I worked there about four or five years. We ended up moving to Abilene where we lived for 10 years. And at the end of, of Abilene, we knew we were moving to Houston. And Houston, or, uh, Jackson Walker had opened a Houston branch in their uh, law firm. So I contacted the administrator, and I was able to get a job here. And through different workings of God and prayers that he placed in my heart to pray that he then answered, I am now working for the managing partner. This gentleman was, he is a believer, but he was not a strong Christian. And I would talk to him about the struggles that we were going through in the small church that we were pastoring at the time. And I would tell him, you know, we feel God leading us to do this, or we felt God told us to do this. And he's like, I don't think I have ever heard God say anything to me. Ever. And he was just blown away by the relationship that he saw that I had with God. So I gave him a book entitled The Power of the Whisper by Bill Hybels. It's an awesome book. So he's reading it and he's like, I don't know about that book. He was not impressed. <laughs> I know, right? But you know what? God worked in his life and worked through that book. Next thing I know, here comes a box to the office. And there are like a dozen books, The Power of the Whisper, in that box. And he was taking them to his men's Bible study, and they were studying that book. At this time, he has started a, a study downtown, a, a businessman's luncheon, that is a Christian gathering for men only, where over 100 men come every month and hear the gospel preached. Now, he doesn't do it. We bring in speakers, but he is touching lives that I would never be able to influence. He has influence over them. I am one person that is not known in the Houston area, and he is known by so many people. And because of the influence that God has allowed me to have in his life, he is now influencing hundreds of people with his life. Who would have thought that 20 years ago, God telling me to quit my job, where I would end up at another firm that has a firm in Houston. It was a crazy thing. But ladies, every one of us have that in our life. And I really want to encourage you to think what God has done, what crazy thing has God asked you to do, and you followed what he did, and what are the results? It's an encouraging thing to look back and see that. And if you haven't had the faith to step out, then I want to encourage you, 
If he is asking you to do something, step out and do it. He will be with you just as he was with Moses and as he was with Joshua. Be strong and very courageous. Step out. He is still the same God. He still works miracles, and I praise him for that. And one more thing I want to do, and then we'll start the video, ladies. We should have prayed for Brian and Angela, and we did not, and I would like to do that right now if you would bow your head. God, we just, again, thank you so much for your presence. And, Lord, I pray right now that you would be with Brian and Angela as they are speaking to these teenagers on D6. God, I pray that you would just fill them with your power, give them boldness, give them the words that you want them to say that these kids need to hear. And I pray that you would change lives because of who you are. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. That's what I was afraid of. Thank you. Okay, this one is on. Okay. Hey.
it's kind of ironic, but I, but I love this story because I can see her actually showing her son her faith in this moment. So maybe you understand this. Maybe you struggle with it too. Maybe sometimes you say that you believe that he's going to come through for you, but then the world starts to pile up all around you and you, you grab the basket instead of believing that he's trustworthy. We all do this. And I love the way that God takes these opportunities and the stories to show himself as a provider, as, as a redeemer. And man, is he patient. he goes back to the Pharaoh's home and he is raised there in this place of tremendous influence. He turns out to be handpicked by God to be the human redeemer of the Israelites. He is the one who's going to lead them out of the land that they have been enslaved in into the land that they have been promised. Based on the homework that you just completed, I so hope that when you read Promised Land, you don't just gloss over it anymore, that you understand what a big deal this is. What a turning point this is in scripture. Moses is going to take them from Egypt, where they have been abused, enslaved, demeaned for years. And he is going to guide them to this place that God has specifically chosen and set aside for them. So imagine you are one of the Israelites at this point. Keep in mind, they have witnessed God performing miracles. They've seen the water part. There's no confusion about who God is, who has done this. He's protected them. He's killed off their enemies. And he's brought them safely to the other side. And wouldn't you think that that would be enough to convince them that he might actually be capable of caring for them? Well, it isn't. They start to grumble. They're complaining, saying, well, now where are we going to get our food? What are we going to do? And again, they start operating from this position of distrust and quite frankly, a complete lack of respect for God. Listen to their voices in Exodus 16. It says in verse 2, And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of God in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. A little dramatic. And so God comes to Moses and he's like, don't worry about it. You go tell them that I am going to provide for them. I'm going to start dropping this substance from the sky and it is going to be their sustenance while they travel. But when God is talking to Moses, he gives them some ground rules to pass along to the Israelites. He says, okay, they're only supposed to gather a certain amount each day. Don't take extra for the next day unless it's the sixth day of the week, in which case they double up so that they'll have enough for the Sabbath on the seventh day. But even after everything that God has done for them, they don't stick to it. They take extra because they just cannot seem to trust that he's going to come through for them. I laugh about this story because I didn't know what manna was. I didn't know anything about this. And, and years ago, as a brand new believer, I was walking through this church. And we kind of passed down this um, hallway and I walked by a preschool classroom. And I don't know what's happening in the classroom, but there's chaos. And, and I stop and I turn to look in the classroom. And I see candy flying in the air of all sizes and shapes. And these children, maybe three years old, are literally like 
like kicking each other and taking each other out and grabbing candy and they're shoving it down their shirts and in their back pockets and they are just pushing everyone out of the way and all the while this little preschool teacher, ambitious as she was, is shouting, manna from heaven, manna from heaven. <laughs> I cannot imagine that that is actually the way this Bible story happens. And I don't think that it is. I think maybe as ambitious as she was, she may have missed the point a little bit. And I think probably we do too. Here's the heart of it. He's going to give us exactly what we need. That doesn't mean that we're always going to recognize that he has done it, but it is the case. So here's the deal with these folks. You've seen it. They're whiners. They get sick of the manna, and all of a sudden they start reminiscing. Remember the good old days in Egypt when we had meat and leeks and all of this stuff. And can I just point out that it is a dark point in history when you have a bunch of people who have finally left slavery and now they want to go back because they are having a craving for leaks. This is pitiful. But their eyes are so focused on how they're perceiving the situation that they completely lose sight of the big picture. And all I can say about that is, yep, I get it. So what does this mean? What does the word manna mean? It really means, what is it? They don't know what it is, and as it's falling from heaven, and they are asking, what is this? Essentially, what God says in response is, you don't need to know exactly what it is. You just need to know that I provided it for you, and that it's enough. They send 12 spies in, and 10 of the 12 come back out. They've checked it out, and they're like, yeah, no, it's awesome. The land is incredible. It's better than we even could have dreamed. But the people are huge. There is no way in the world that we could ever take them on. Forget it. Let's pack it up. Let's go. And we hear Caleb kind of raise his hand and pipe up and say, listen, let's do this. Let's go. We're able to overcome it. He didn't see anything different than the people had. He didn't see anything that the other spies hadn't seen. He just chose to believe that God was going to keep his word. I mean, after all, God has said, I am bringing you here. It's a done deal. It doesn't matter what it looks like. It doesn't matter what our eyes see. What God is saying is, it's yours. You just got to go in and claim it. The only other spy who saw this was Joshua. And I love reading what he says. In the book of Numbers, Chapter 14, starting at verse 6, we see, And Joshua, the son of Nun and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. And do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. I love God. He's like, they're bred. They're not a threat to us. God is on our side. Don't be fooled by what your eyes can see. So again, we saw this pattern over and over again in this week's homework. We can either choose to see things the way that our circumstances show us they are, or we can trust God. Well, in this situation, they're super intimidated by the huge people. They don't go for it. And as a result, they end up wandering for 40 more years. 
while the entire generation of disbelievers dies out. God has been very clear from the beginning of the Old Testament with his people. If you obey my commands, I will take care of you. If, if, over and over you see this, you are my chosen people. I have special inheritance for you. If you choose to be a part of it, it is yours, but you have got to obey me. So after 40 years of wandering, they make their second attempt. It's a new generation. They send in some spies again, and this time, the spies meet a woman named Rahab, who just so happens to live in a wall in a building that's on the outside of the city. She's a woman of ill repute, specifically, she's a prostitute. But as we're about to see, God also evaluates things beyond what the eye can see, and he allows her to be a part of this amazing redemptive story. because she knows that their God is real and powerful. She goes on to ask a request of them. When you come back, protect my family. They do. They eventually enter into the land. The battle of Jericho happens, and they know that there are certain groups of people that they are supposed to conquer, but they don't do that. They disobey. They start to kind of make friends with these people, and their, their perception is that maybe they're not that bad after all. They, they get friendly with them. They assimilate into their cultures. They become buddies with a bunch of them. We cannot trust our perception. We can only trust the Lord. He knew that this was a kiss of death for them, and gradually the people start to suffer greatly because of their disobedience. We see Joshua more and more as this mantle of leadership is passed from him. And, and before he dies, he lays this whole thing out again. If, 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 if you obey, these are the ground rules. And when they intermarry and they start to worship other idols and they do all of these things that they're not supposed to, well, guess what? They get pummeled. They lose battles exactly like God said they would. And the cycle of judges begins. We, we talked about that in your homework, but... The heart of this, again, is they're not taking God seriously unless things get so bad they are screaming for mercy. Do not think that God is naive. He knows that they are going to continue in this, that he loves them. And scripture says he is so moved by their groaning that he intervenes over and over again, only for them to continue falling into the same patterns. So one of the sweetest spots for me in this whole section of scripture is the story of Boaz and Ruth. It's kind of nestled in the midst of all this chaos and rebellion. And we meet this woman whose heart for God and her devotion to her mother-in-law brings her out of her hometown and into a foreign place. Above everything else, and despite the struggle that must have come alongside her choice, she genuinely wanted to honor God. And I imagine her out in the fields working and what it must have looked like for Boaz to see her from across the field. He's heard of her, he knows her reputation, and he tells his men, make sure she's taken care of. He provides for her. More than that, we see that the Lord has something even more spectacular planned for her. Not only will this man take care of her, he'll eventually become her husband. So because of his relationship with her mother-in-law, he was qualified to act as her redeemer. I don't want you to miss this. The reward of her obedience was provision by her redeemer. And this man, this, this redeemer, this clear representation of Christ. Guess who he is? He's the son of Rahab, the prostitute. 
the woman who trusted God and, and slipped a scarlet cord into the night out of faith. I look back at these stories and I think about Moses' mother and the lesson that her faith taught him. While she had been allowed providentially to be his wet nurse for some time, she wasn't the one who actually raised him. He was raised in Pharaoh's household. But what did she provide for him? She stood at the edge of the water. She put him in and she pushed him because of her faith. And years later, when Moses would stand before the sea and he would trust that God was going to part it, I can't help but think that in the back of his mind, what he remembered was the same faith that his mother had instilled in him. Moses, this water is no match for you. Your job is to trust God. The water is no match for a man who is obedient to God. And Rahab, she taught the same lesson. We trust him more than we fear the rest of the world. We, we don't trust what it is that we see with our eyes. We trust God who is providing for us. And this is how it is with God. He's the one who sent us Moses, the redeemer of his people, who sent us Boaz, the redeemer of his bride. And I just want to encourage you as you're watching not to be troubled or dismayed. You have been bought at a very, very high price. You've been adopted for a great purpose. You are destined for things you can probably not even begin to understand in this life. And so when the world looks scary, I want to encourage you to think about these stories and to keep your eyes above the rooftops and the fields of fear. Stake your claim on Jesus and remember that he alone is your one great and mighty 